This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast and welcome to our episode 301. First podcast which is amazing <laughs> and really really fun that we have had this kind of a good time doing this and <clears throat> for all of you who entered the contest on the 300th podcast thank you and uh, we have the winners indeed thank you guys so i know at the end of last one last episode i said that we would continue talking about that lee lu speech we will next time because today we want to play these questions that we got and talk about them and that's going to take the whole episode but we so will get back you, to that lilu speech now you have a whole nother week to, to yeah to go read it because you haven't i know <laughs> so now go do it you procrastinators it is a i think it's so good you i mean i love it on every level so um go do it now so Back you can find that stuff. at the Himalaya Capital website under wherever his speeches are. You'll find Documents it. Or something. And it's, do you remember what it's called, Dad? Because I don't. It's, um, it's, a, it's in Peking it's University. It's basically, can you do value investing in China? Sort yeah, of and it's at Peking University. So look for that yeah. one. It's at the top. And we're not um, mispronouncing that. It's Peking University in Beijing. That is the second time you said that. Why did you like... Look up the pronunciation? Because it's sort of, um, it, it is Peking, the words Peking University, uh-huh. kind of kind of smell a bit of colonialism. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, didn't, I don't want to do it where it could be construed that we don't even understand how to pronounce the name of the city. Oh, like you're saying like maybe we should call it Beijing University. Yeah. Oh, exactly. when you say pronounce, I thought you meant like maybe it was... You would think it would be Something. pronounced Beijing University, but it's not. <laughs> I don't know why it's not, but it's Peking University. Well, in you know, in Beijing, it's the way yes. that it's translated on his speech. So yeah. I know nothing about it, and I'm going to go with the way he says right. it. And if anybody wants to correct us, we are open to corrections because we do not right know. Right um, so, you guys, thank you so much for leaving these questions. It's really exciting. We're going to, as you know, continue to try to play questions throughout the year. But um, but we want to play three of them today. And first of all, Dad, tell us a couple honorable mentions of some really nice messages that were left. Okay. So, this is a big shout out to Sam Kang, who wrote, or who wrote, who gave us this wonderful message about how he found um, my book rule number one in a, in a Barnes and Noble in uh, June of 2020 and, and just went on to, I don't, I don't know if it was 2020 or not, but he went on basically to really get deep into the study. My favorite part was that he said, you looked like an honest old man. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I look like an honest old guy, (laughs) which there you go. Um, Sometimes you can tell a book by its cover. Uh, (laughs) 
And, you know, he just sounds like such a good guy. And he has gone on to really take control of his of his money. And he was just saying he just missed the March, March drop. And we'll talk a little bit about being ready for the next one, you know, maybe at some yeah. other point. Because I think a, a lot, lot of people, people miss the mark draw, yeah. And, you know, I'm sitting here loaded and ready, and, man, we uh, we got about half in that we wanted to, uh, and Buffett got in zero. So we should talk about that sometime, um, about what that means. So, okay, that's one. Sam, thank you very much. Second, thank you, Sam. Um, was from Ryan Romero, just really sweet, Add a boy to us saying, you know, loved it, been listening for a long time and just keep it up. And we appreciate all of that, all that that comes in. So thanks, yeah. Ryan. Thank very you very much for that. Um, now, these three questions, by the way, that we're going to go over, we picked them because they cover a huge range from kind of really simple to really complicated uh, question, really deep into it kind of a question. So we're going to, we're, we're going to award these according to kind of how they fall on that scale, um, where we think the the best question that it hit the middle of the bell curve would be. And then we've got <laughs> questions on the other end, a tail on each, a tail question on I each mean, end. I mean, how can there be a best question and a worst question? There's just I questions. Know, like, They're you just want to know something. I think any, as you guys know, because you've heard me ask every question under the sun, any question is important. You know that saying, there's no such thing as stupid questions, and the people are always like, well, they're definitely stupid questions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I disagree, because even stupid questions lead to understanding something a little bit better. It's so true. So, it's this so true. is from Aurora. Thank you for your question, Aurora. And Here we, we go. We don't have a last name, or we would give it to you, so that Aurora. True, true. All right. Totally fair. Don't have to leave a last name. Right on. Hi, Danielle. First of all, I wanted to say thank you for all the education. And then I was wondering if you could uh, talk about one of your currently favorite stocks. That would be helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Aurora. It's so nice to get a question uh, just for me. I feel very special. So <laughs> I asked Dad if he would tell his favorite stock, and he'll let you guys know in a minute. But so my current favorite stock is Square. I am obsessed with Square right now. Um, it's been, not to belabor the point, but it's been a long road here with the illness. And I really haven't been able to do much investing practice for way too long at this point. And so coming back over the last really like, I would say month, maybe six weeks, has been... Um, kind of a cool rediscovery of my investing practice. And I've been really learning how to deepen it and how to find, how to pick out the points that really make me um, able to push forward when I'm tired and when I'm not really feeling up to it. And frankly, when my brain is not up to it because of the brain fog, how can I still kind of touch my investing practice? And what that's led me to is just reading about interesting stuff and what I'm finding to be fascinated by is where is our world going and how are we going to purchase things and what is it going to look like um, in our towns and our cities? And that's obviously a huge concept, but one of the companies that I 
have been looking at for a while and am now like reading about even more is Square because what Square does, and this is why I think they're so cool, is their concept is payments, but omni-channel payments. So not only are they person-to-person payments, they are also um, merchant and seller payments. So they have these two sides and their whole concept is that everything should work together. And I can't, I don't know any other company that does it like that. I mean, you have Shopify online, which they're excellent at that. And they're leading the category. Square also has online, of course, but Shopify doesn't have the entire seller side, the entire in-person experience side and the peer-to-peer side. And, um, and then you've got like PayPal and Venmo and they've got the whole like person to person sending money thing, but they don't have the in-person merchants uh, experience. And Square really is trying to position itself as they do it all and it just works. So if you're somebody who sells bagels in your shop and you use a Square payment terminal, you then can go out and sell those bagels at the farmer's market and bring your portable Square terminal, which you guys all remember Square used to be, um, the way they came out was that little Square, literal Square uh, credit card swiper that you could plug into your phone. That's how they started. Um, And then... If, you know, they want to sell bagels to their friend down the street who just said like, hey, do you have any extra bagels? They can just do it through the cash app really easily. They don't even need their seller um, merchant system. So that's the idea. And I don't know if it's going to be, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to payments, but I think that they're trying to be. And I love the innovation of it. I love where they're going with their company. Their mission is literally on the front of their website, on the top of their annual reports, their mission is economic empowerment for everyone. And I can't think of a better mission. It's one that I feel we do here on the podcast and in our work. And uh, I'm just, I'm loving them. What do you think, Dad? I think Jim McElvey, I always mess up his name. Jim McElvey is, first and foremost, a tremendous person. Right, and I love investing with really good people, man. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, um, a lot of what happens with your investment, um, particularly back in the old venture capital days I did when you were a little kid, is categorized or, or is characterized by you're you're betting on the rider, not the horse. And you've seen that too in your practice, right? Yeah, that's my Where whole it's all, concept. It's so important to to have great people particularly when you're a values type of investor, right? Which is under, you want to buy things and support things that are going to be great 20 years from now and make the world better. Mm-hmm. So first off, big, big, big shout out to Jim. He's a fabulous guy. He was also Melissa, on our podcast. And you guys, if you missed that, go back and listen. Cause frankly, it was a great super interview. Good guy. I mean, I, I know him personally and I know his wife personally and uh, his book innovation stack is just, brilliant on how it's really good innovation i i can't say a bad thing about square i i really love the company i love their mission and they live it they walk it they walk their talks so so fantastic so it's one of these companies that is going to you know is changing did change the world dramatically by empowering the little guy who's got a business that's you know making five thousand dollars a year 
who couldn't get a credit card machine. Exactly. So they're and do you know what they're doing now? Day. Like the coolest stuff with the COVID situation and all the lockdowns, they're making it so that people who are really struggling to have access to cash, access to their paychecks, you know, they're behind on their bills. They just instituted a system where they have this cash app, which is like Venmo, and then they have their seller ecosystem. And they made it so that... Um, uh, somebody who's an employer can pay people through the cash app so that they have next day availability to their, um, to their paychecks. And it's just so much faster. And for people who don't have access to traditional banking, who can't get a bank account, this is life changing. They can get direct deposit into the cash app from the seller ecosystem. Like they are walking their talk of economic empowerment. And I just, I just love it. And I wish them so much success, whether or not I'm an investor or not, I wish them so much success on all of these innovations that they've created to uh, respond to this situation. Yeah, okay, so, so the 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 downside here <clears throat> is what? How do you? What's your inversion here, real quick? I think the downside is there are a little too much of everything, and there are other companies that are winning in the various spaces. So they may just—I don't think this is going to happen—but you could see a situation where they just get beaten, they just fade away, and people don't care that you can talk to each other between the different uh, situations. It doesn't matter. It works fine to go from, you know, PayPal to Shopify, whatever. Um, and they just don't need it. I think that's the inversion. I think um, the other part of it is they have been raising tons of money. They're not profit. Well, they're, uh, they have a lot of <laughs> revenue, but because they're spending so much, on growing their business, they're not profitable. They could be if they didn't spend so much, but um, it's a kind of Amazon, an Amazon. It's kind totally of thing. a growth Amazon. Yeah. Alibaba, um, JD, they've all. It's done not that. a company that has ten years of great net income. Right. No. So, so that I, I those would, are the two big worries. I basically, I basically say you're a hundred percent right, and that I would just call it. I don't know where they're going to be in ten years. I don't know if they're going to be bigger or gone. I don't think they're going to be gone. I I do. Yeah, I don't think there's they're going to be gone. Chance. I, I, there's, it's not crazy. In other words, I, I don't want to put money in stuff that I, I could have a permanent loss of capital. So I always like to try to look out and say, okay, are they, are they going to be around in this size or so in 10 years? I would, I would say good chance here. But always when you're dealing with companies that are changing the world, you're dealing with that problem. They've, yeah. You know, creative creative destruction is a, is a tough in that industry. You got to okay. be up for going on the ride. And as I said about a different company a while ago, I wasn't up for that ride. I'm up for this ride. I'm into it. I'm, <laughs> I love it. I want to support them. Um, I, I'm into going on the roller coaster. So uh, mine are so much easier. <laughs> I have just basic companies that are sort of on the retail side of things. But just one, really just one. Special. Aurora just wanted one. Right on. So now, first off, I can't tell you companies that are my favorites that I'm still buying and would want to and will want to continue to buy for all kinds of reasons, regulatory and pure self-interest. Because obviously, if uh, thousands of you go out and start buying this company, as you can see by what's going on with Robinhood and and. Uh, um, 
God, what's the name of that? GameStop. Oh, yeah. where, where where thousands of you guys with, with not necessarily a ton of money are just blowing that stock up and down like crazy. So there's a certain vested interest of, of investors like me that want the stock price to go down to not disclose it, not not to mention that I've got regulatory issues here with that disclosure. So with that in mind, um, I will say I'm going to give you uh, my favorite company that I'm no longer buying but would buy again if it drops like a brick which is Ulta. 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 U-L-T-A. The beauty company. Yeah. You don't pronounce it Ulta? I I'd never, I don't think I've ever said the name. Ulta. 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 Yeah. Ulta. I don't know. Ulta. It's cosmetics that are sitting in a range of prices up from very, very low. It's, it's basic reputation is we do cheap cosmetics, but they have all sorts oh, there. Oh, yeah. We talked all about them once. We did sure. a whole episode on them, I think. Yeah. And Mary yeah, Dillon yeah, yeah. runs it. She's a brilliant, brilliant CEO who loves to build her people and make her people better. And her people in her stores are wonderful. Um, it's It's gone for the ride. We've already started... I don't know that we're going to sell right now, but it's okay if you guys all run out and buy it because we're going to sell it <laughs> if you do and push the price up too high. Otherwise, we'll hold on to it. And I really like it. It's a great company. Um, the company that I do not have and would buy again if it drops like a brick is Chipotle Mexican Grill, which we've talked about here endlessly. Yeah. That you know we bought it at two eighty and I don't know what it is right now fifteen hundred or something. It's just gone nuts and yeah yeah super well run on ulta Hmm. what's the inversion the inversion is that uh sephora is coming on Hmm. with its own stores and with a max you know like high-end beauty product that is now diversifying downward into the drugstore beauty stuff so that they can compete with ulta um and they were just purchased by Oh man, this big brand company in France, L- LVMH. VMH, yeah, very good. LVMH it owns them, so you it can't get a sense. pure play. Yeah, because um, um, LVMH is very high end branded. That, that makes sense to me. I think when That's, we talked about it, I said I liked Sephora so much more. <laughs> it's yeah, just and a the second thing is that I don't experience. know that they've got in, they don't have endless growth possibilities. They've got a ceiling there in terms of how many retail stores you can get. And they're, they're, they want to they want to expand overseas. So the inversion is they're going to grow maybe double where they are right now and then what. Um, so when we look out 10 years, we're very confident they're going to be larger, but I don't know that they're going to be able to sustain growth, which might, you know, basically lower the overall return from super high to just okay. Um, you guys remember we try to get 26% per year compounded rate of return. You can't do that if a, you're holding companies that have uh, s- sort of hit their growth limits and you know now they're growing at the rate of inflation and how, how much they can do extra in their stores. And so their growth rate is 8% instead of 20. So wow, just, that's really just opposite that. of what you've often said about like seize candy and well-run businesses that if you buy them cheap. Well, that's, are, that's the difference between having a portfolio you're just protecting and having one that you really want to keep the velocity of your money very high. So when you're like, I have, I have an obligation to try to keep the velocity of the money pretty high. So I'm going to 
I'm going to move out of things that are going down to their seize candy growth rate, um, in spite of the fact that they're just producing a ton of cash for a couple of reasons. First off, seize candy isn't going to give me their, or, or Ulta isn't going to give me their cash, and, which I could then reinvest at a high rate. That Meaning they're not candy, going to give you a dividend. They're not, yeah, they're not going to give me their free cash flow. But Seize Candy does do that for Berkshire. So Berkshire can turn right around mm. and put it in 20% per year investments. So that's a pretty big difference and um, the main difference right there. All right. Okay. That's, that's enough of that one. Question two. This is from Karen. No. No. This is from Peter. Peter Vanderhelm. I hope I picked the right one. <laughs> Let me fix it to make sure I did. You say things, Dad, while I pull up. Okay, so on on that point with um, the investing ideas that we have is when we, I hate, I, I really kind of feel bad that I've told you guys a couple of good companies. Not that isn't good for you, it is, it's great. But what I want is to be able to buy them again. And if thousands and thousands and thousands of people know that this is a really good company, and they've done their work on it, then they're not going to let it drop. As it starts to go down, it's like the first guy in gets to start to set the price. And I want him to drop a lot. Uh, I, I think Warren Buffett covered this once when he said, I hope Coca-Cola goes down 50% so we can buy more of it. And it's such a fundamental to great investing to understand you only need about 20 companies in your whole life. <clears throat> because natural market fluctuations come along typically every seven to 10 years and they'll drop the price of that company down to where you can buy more. And so the, the real trick of starting with a little money and becoming really wealthy is getting out of that wonderful company that you love rather than staying in it forever and riding through the ups and the downs. And the trick is you get out as it nears intrinsic value or goes above it and then you buy back in when it when the fluctuation comes. That's how Buffett made so much money from 1955 to 1965. Now, once you get huge, then yeah, you just buy it and sit in it because really two things. Number one, you don't need to have huge returns. And number two, you really will affect the market if you get out. So, okay. Onward to question number two. I still think it's important to talk about particular companies sometimes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Peter, thank you for your question. Um, guys, there's uh, some comments from Peter very uh, about my dad's workshop, which are very nice, but feel free to uh, ignore. You know, yeah. This is not a pitch. Hey, we didn't mean to do this. Hello from Canada. It's Peter. I just wanted to drop you a note and say how happy we all are that Danielle's recovering and that the two of you are back at it doing your podcasts. We enjoy them. Elaine and I have been together for 35 years married, and we have four grown sons, 25 to 32 years old. Elaine and I saw Phil speak at the Power of Success in Toronto in 2018. We went mostly to see Tony Robbins, but we really enjoyed Phil, and so we signed up for the weekend course. Then we signed up for the first two parts of the Rule 1 training and did those in 2019, and have been using the things we learned to transform our investing ever since. We also sent two of our sons to the weekend course in Vancouver, and they loved it. Now the two. Now that we plan to start a small hedge fund, likely mostly friends and family, uh, and have a few questions. I'm a CPA in Canada. My wife and my two sons uh, are all Bachelor of Commerce degrees, and my youngest son and I talk a lot about how complicated it is to actually track 
and account for and report on the investments, particularly to an outside investor, particularly once you get into options, and then when you start adding inflows and outflows, trying to create valuations at those junctures, and to incorporate some of Buffett's ideas, such as basis, into the reporting internally. So we have two questions, really. One, do you know of any software that's been developed, or do you have any software that stays consistent with the required legal reporting, but also gives you some of the ideology and reporting for the things like basis and so on uh, from rule one? And the second question is, my son and I, the youngest son, were thinking about taking the CFA designation, and do you see any benefit in that? We thought of it mainly to learn the uh, legal side of the definitions of the valuation, reporting, and so on. But in general, uh, I wondered if you had any thoughts on the value of taking the course in general. Anyway, keep co- keep going, keep keeping on. Hopefully, Danielle keeps feeling better. Uh, we love you guys, and uh, good luck, and talk to you soon. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, so that was that, a very um, sort of high-level question. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a guy who basically three years ago saw me speak, caught the caught the fever, and really I do- mean, saw Tony Robbins speak, and you right showed on, up. Right on, right on. <laughs> I can't help it. I have to say. <laughs> oh, I, was, I was so happy about that for a second there. So he, he basically dove in um, and really got uh, a, a real strong breadth of education over a couple of years. And now it's, I mean, that's the beauty of this thing. When you start investing, you can see quite quickly that it's working for you, I think. And and um, he's decided to And it's so nice that his kids are level. involved with him, isn't it? I know, I love it. Yeah. He's a, he's a CPA. So this guy's a CPA and, and obviously understands accounting very well. Um, so he's, there's, there's always a, a, you know, there's a nice connection there that he can move straight into the idea of being a hedge fund manager. Very, very encouraging for me as a teacher that people are thinking like that. And we love it when our students go on and become professionals. Um, I'm going to take the second question first, which is the CFA designation. My analysts started that CFA designation and then both of them stopped it. Um, because essentially for them, um, it was an. Ed- they discovered very quickly it's an education in modern portfolio theory, that most of the requirements of the CFA are to learn all of these, requ- all of these uh, computer-generated programs, the math and everything that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett make fun of all the time. But you already know. But but if you're going to go out and be a fund manager. Having a CFA designation is more valuable than having an MBA designation. A CFA designation tells all the rest of the industry, the pension funds, everybody who might ultimately be investing money with you, that you're a professional, you know what you're doing. And having a CPA, CFA, I think is fantastic. Uh, I, I would say go for it. Not for what you're going to learn particularly, although you certainly will learn things that are useful, um, and you'll certainly learn a lot about modern portfolio theory. And when somebody starts talking to you about, you know, cap and pricing models, you'll know exactly what they're talking about and can tell them they're full of crap. So that's always fun. In fact, one, one somebody at Cambridge once said that the purpose of an education is so that you can tell when the other fellow is talking rot. Yeah, I think I have I have a number of friends who have a CFA and I have one friend who's studying for it right now. And 
it's just a fantastic education. Like it's really, by the way, it's really hard to be a CFA. It's not just like, oh, I went and got my CFA. Harder than an MBA, for sure. Well, it's not comparable to NBA because it's just three exams. So you have to get through the first one to get to the second one. You have to get through the second one to get to the third one. It's something like only a third of people end up finishing the whole thing. So it's also just a very prestigious uh, designation because it shows that you're smart enough to pass those tests and you worked hard enough to pass those tests. Um, And I think everybody I know who's done it has not regretted the time they've put in. It's been very useful, both in what they've learned and in being able to just have that on your resume. I I would say the last thing Danielle said is the really important one, because the rest of it is mostly stuff you will not use. Yeah, but you know, you haven't done it, Dad, so you don't actually know. I've looked at their, I mean, I've I've had CFAs working for me. Yeah. I, I totally know what the agenda is in the curriculum for a CFA. And I, I got to tell you that there's never a downside of learning this stuff. It, it's always good to learn. Exactly. It'd be like reading uh, Devorden's book on valuation. Absolutely valuable. I've read them and you know, they're useless to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to do what those books are meant to do. And, I, and you will not, uh, if you're investing like I do, not be doing what the CFAs do. So in that sense, I think, you know, the value of it is the designation. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. We've chewed on that one pretty good. Your, your choice for sure. But I think it's valuable for that. The second, the, the first question was, you know, are there, is there software to track the rather sophisticated kinds of investing you're talking about doing, which is, you know, you're, you're going to, you want to track your basis against reducing basis like multiple purchases of the stock and your basic brokerage account is going to be able to do that fine but when you start throwing in adjusted basis with dividends and option trades that you're doing to bring down the basis nothing tracks that very well our software if we call it that is all handled by i don't even know if there's software i'm sure there is but it's all handled by administrators in, in When you our say funds. our, what does that mean? My, our funds, my funds. Okay. That's all handled by administrators, completely third party, and I have absolutely nothing to do with it. And they just report on a monthly basis where we're at on all these things. So my guys built their own thing out of Excel. And I had two guys working on it, and they just continued to, to develop it. And it is really sophisticated. Um, and it tracks everything you're talking about, but we had to build this ourselves. We don't sell it. It's it. I don't, you know, when you sell something like this, you have to support it and it's not built like that. It's just thrown together as best our guys could do it. So I guess the good news is by the time you finish a CFA designation and, and the level of Excel works <laughs> spreadsheet, you're not, you're going to know how to do, you That's can probably true. figure out how to do what they did on your own. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> <laughs> I would say. And if we ever get around to building this thing in, you know, using tools where you can support the thing and change it and fix it, um, absolutely, you guys will be the first to know. We'll put it out to our whole database and you'll be right on the list. Peter, we wish you the best of luck and your sons and your wife, Elaine. Thanks for uh, sending in your question. Rock on, man. I hope you crush it so big that someday, like Charlie Munger, I want to invest with somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. Grand El Prizo. 
to Karen Burnside. And Karen is getting to go to my dad's workshop and she's getting my newsletter and my course on emotions and in investing. Karen, here we go. Hi, this is Karen Burnside. And I'm wondering how the devaluation of currency will affect stocks and businesses for the next three to five years. And what your, what your take on that is um, in the real estate market, the, the uh, stimulus packages and, and pumping all that money into the economy uh, has started um, to cause real estate prices to rise. And I'm curious how, how that is going to affect stocks and businesses. And I'd like to hear your take on that. And I enjoy your podcast. And thanks for this chance at a giveaway. I really like this question. This is like the best. Qu- Karen, way to be like straight to the point and incisive and basically ask the question we all want to know the answer to. Yes, indeed. Thank this you is... for uh, for clicking and for sending in your question. And we're excited to give you the grand prize. So <laughs> basically she's asking, what the heck, man? What is all of this money printing and quantitative easing and low interest rates? going to add up to. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you want me to dive in first? (laughs) I mean, my, sure. My answer is who the heck knows, but go ahead. Try to give your, well, so I give you what we know so far. Okay. All right. Um, that this is so classic and, and this is so connected to what Lee Lou is talking about and that we're going to go into next week. Um, that the devaluation of U.S. dollar has been, as we said, I think, re- what a couple podcasts ago, yeah, um, a process of continuing devaluation, it, it faster and slower, but always continual, as the government prints money since 1934, and it has reduced the buying power of the dollar since 1934 by 96 percent. Now that doesn't mean it's got 4% to go and it's at zero. It just means it can, you know, it's like it continues to devalue and become less valuable over time. Um, and because it's the world's reserve currency, what happens to a third world nation doesn't happen to the United States. A third world nation like Zimbabwe keeps doing that and pretty soon nobody will even print the currency. And then they have destroyed their currency and gone on a barter system. So it's an absolute country ruining process to devalue your currency um, unless you're big enough to do it for a long, long, long time. And that's where we are. The rest of the world is devaluing with us, which allows the United States, and they have to because the United States is a gigantic market. And if we devalue our currency, what that means is the dollar won't buy as much stuff from Japan as it did last year. And from you know Swiss chocolate and Rolex watches, get more and more expensive to U.S. consumers unless the Swiss and the Japanese devalue their currencies in lockstep with the dollar, in which case there's a parity. That's that's totally, I agree, but I also think what's happening in the rest of the world is the same thing that's happening in the U.S., which is governments are printing money to help people who are losing income from lockdowns. So it's not just all monetary policy, it's actual requirements that these governments are trying to meet and and the whole world is dealing with the same virus. So it's the response across the whole world. No, kind of right. Um, but the one outlier is China. 
they don't have to. They are a positive balance of trade. They got yeah, gold. That's true. They yeah. have U.S. dollars. They really don't have to devalue, but they have been devaluing. And and uh, President Trump accused them of you know monetary manipulation, um, probably correctly. They have been unfairly devaluing in order to just be able to sell us cheap stuff. Hmm. So everybody's accused at, at, at when everybody's devaluing the basic thing that happens is somebody starts accusing somebody else of devaluing <laughs> <laughs> so and then your currency wars can start or not you know depending on what everybody gets together and agrees on mm -hmm. so to the point of your question devaluation uh this last year against other currencies for the dollar was pretty significant the dollar dropped 12 percent against the euro um, and the yuan didn't devalue in lockstep, which means China might be starting to think maybe we can do this on our own and and put up a second, put up an alternative to the world's currency. And this is a natural practice that happens. Great Britain was the world's currency for many years with the pound. And then in the turn of the century after World or after World War One, they started to lose that status. And the United States started coming on as an alternative currency. And by the 1930s, um, it had been a stronger currency. And after World War II, the pound was no longer the world's reserve currency. And they went into a gigantic decline because of that. So the real question is, you know, are we, are we going down that road? And the answer is, yeah, we are. Um, and it's, it's going to get us. Ray Dalio thinks it's going to get us sooner rather than later. And right now the stock market is reflecting all of this currency printing that's been going on. We've printed in the last 10 months or 12 months, we have printed 35% of all the U.S. dollars ever printed in our history. And this this is a shocking thing. You can look it up on the Federal Reserve St. Louis FRED website, and you'll see that um, in the last, in 2020, we went from $4 trillion ever printed in M1 money supply to seven trillion. We increased it by 70% from where it was, which wow. is 35% overall. This is just shocking when you actually see what's out there. And now we're planning on doing another two trillion. And if we do that, right, that'll be another huge devaluation. So what the stock market is doing is reflecting the fact that uh, two things are going on at once. First, interest rates are being artificially held at zero, which, Really, as you mentioned, Karen, it stimulates real estate drastically when you have mortgages at 2.9%, right? You can buy so much more with $2,000 a month than you could before. Mm -hmm. And so naturally real estate prices rise until they reflect that. And it's sort of, if interest rates go up, you know, then the opposite happens. The so that's what's going on. Number one and number and so there's a search for for yield, a search for how do I make money on my money, since I can't lend it to anybody and get anything, right? I, I lend it to the U.S. government. I'm going to get less than one percent a year. It makes sense to put it into the stock market, and as a result, everybody's putting money in the stock market to get some kind of a yield. Stocks just keep going up. On top of that, Trump cut taxes for corporations drastically. And instead of investing what he thought they would do or hope they would do and hiring more people and buying more infrastructure and the whole thing, they didn't. They just bought back their own stock, which further drove up the stock market. And so the end result is we're currently at 
a 45 PE, and that's just crazy on the S&P 500 when historical average is about 16. So we are triple. I mean, that's, yeah, go ahead. Okay, we're triple and adjusted over a 10-year period, which will take the COVID thing out of it. We're at 34% on the Schiller PE adjusted for, for COVID and the inflation rate. So it's stunning. It's only been there three times in history, and we've crashed dramatically every single time following that. So the yield right now in the stock market in the United States is right around 2.2%, um, which I have never seen in my life except just briefly in 1999 before the market crashed. So honestly, I got to tell you, I'm very leery of this market. Um, we're sitting pretty much, you know, a huge chunk of the, uh, is in cash. And we're hoping that we're ready to buy um, when when things go. So as you continue to devalue your currency, you continue to drive up assets to a place where ultimately they don't make any sense at all. And we're getting there. So that's, that's I can't disagree answer. with anything you said. I think it's a really good, really good description, really good summary of what's happening. The question is what happens now? And that's really Karen's question. And the thing is, since we've been talking about this for years and years now, the market's been at this very, very high multiple. Higher mm -hmm. now than it mm -hmm. was. Yeah, yeah. Higher now than it was. Yeah, but right. since we've started talking about it, it's been at uh, roughly like 2000.com era levels or higher. Right. And, and it so hasn't we're talking, crashed. We're talking really four years here so far. Yeah. Right. Um. In combination with that, as she astutely pointed out, interest rates are minimal. Like unless we go negative, they're as low as they're, they're going to go. And there's no way the government's going to raise them. So I think interest rates are going to stay really low. Well, as well long better as than they no can... way. There's actually a promise that they won't until the end of 2023. Oh, fabulous. There you go. There you go. So... I think the real question is what happens in this situation where a hundred percent demonstrably factually, the market is overvalued where multiple companies, <laughs> mostly tech companies are not profitable and yet have PEs of 300 like square. This is insane. But that doesn't mean it won't continue. It does not mean the insanity won't continue. I mean, when was that? Three years ago? Three or four years ago when Buffett wrote his famous shareholder letter saying... 2017. Make sure you're ready with a bucket to run outside when it's raining gold. He right. was expecting the market to crash. Everybody of sense was expecting the market to crash. Except for our bump in March it has not crashed. Right. So this is, this is like reality. This is happening that the facts point one way and reality is different. And so to what's going to happen with this situation of the low interest rates and the crazy market, I, and this is the reason why I said, I have no idea what's going to happen. I can absolutely see it continuing on this path, going up, just going up for the sake of going up because interest rates are so low and people are excited about putting money in the market. That doesn't mean it's not ever going to crash. It will crash at some point, but I could definitely see this continuing. It will continue until it doesn't. 
Well, right. That's, Isn't that's the point, right? Right. In other words, <laughs> Ke- you know, John Maynard Keynes, famous economist back in the 30s, said that, um, you know, the market can stay irrational longer than you have money if you're betting against it. And yeah. so we don't want to bet against it. We don't want to short this market, you know, do a lot of stuff that we would, we would, you know, how we would, we would lose money if it keeps going up over the short run, whatever that is next two, three, four, five years, whatever it takes, right. Whatever that run is, mm-hmm. eventually the market will reset because the mechanisms of creating a bubble are, are just like gravity to economics. So this is a bubble and everybody knows it's a bubble mm-hmm. and kids are betting everything they can in Ro- at Robin Hood and you can get top, you know, stock tips from everybody and everybody thinks Warren Buffett is old and over the hill and mm-hmm. uh, now there's headlines on it and now you start to hear oh it's a new reality, mm-hmm. right? So these mm-hmm. are oh man, these are all indications of market top. Right? So we don't know exactly when, but we know somewhere in here it's likely to go. And we don't really care. We've been steadily making money in this market for these last five years. We haven't had bad years. They just haven't been as good as they would be if we could buy more things on sale. We've had to stay conservative and keep cash. So yeah. that, that ultimately gives us short-term returns that aren't as good as we would like, but we're still doing okay. Our experience over 40 years of this is that this will go down. And when it does, we need to be ready. And when, if we're ready and we're able to buy great companies at wonderful prices, we will make up for these less stellar returns so quickly with the kind of returns we get by being able to buy when the market's crumbling. Yeah, it's possible. I guess I just think like if somebody had read that shareholder letter, you said it was 2017 mm-hmm. and immediately sold everything and decided to sit there and wait. Mm-hmm. And then this market, let's say, continues for another four years, mm-hmm. that they'd be waiting for almost 10 years. And yeah. that's and, a heck and, of a lot of a person's lifetime. Yeah, that's a huge chunk. And it would be really anomalous, right? That's That would be extremely anomalous. Yes, but this but is, if, we are in an anomaly, Dad. Okay, but we guess what? We are anomalous. You don't get to change an investing strategy just because the, uh, the interference of federal government is more than ever and it might last, this thing that's anomalous might last longer than you'd expect. You don't get to sort of go... I guess I've got to buy a 300 PE company. No, you know? not at all. I don't think right? anybody thinks that. So you, you have to work a little harder maybe to find the things that are on sale. But we found really good companies on sale all last year, right? I mean, in, yeah. uh, before the crash, before the crash. Mm-hmm. And and so it just it just gets a little more difficult. And then I want you to just take it, you know, everybody take a deep breath and recognize that the only thing Buffett has been able to find last year to put money into, including during the crash, was his own stock. He just bought back Berkshire with about fourteen billion dollars. He bought that a bunch was, of Apple too. No, not last year. He bought a 20. bunch of it, but he's you know, he bought a huge bunch of it, but he wouldn't buy it last year. Twenty twenty. Is 2020 last year or this year? Last year. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, so I guess my conclusion, what's my conclusion? My conclusion is 
the same as it was in the beginning. I have no idea what's going to happen with this thing. And right. but what are as you I always do? say, I don't really care. Like we, I think there it's, it's really interesting. And I feel the desire to have some sense of like, do I get out or do I not get out? But if there's anything I've learned from this craziness, it's that predicting the market is not only a waste of my time, it's so boring to me because it just never results in anything useful. You're either right or you're wrong. And either way, like just pick your darn companies and that's move right. on. That's right. <laughs> it, I, right or wrong, it doesn't change a thing about yeah, how you invest. Exactly. It really doesn't. And I'll give you one one fun number that happened in our first workshop in Singapore in 2009 that we've mentioned before here, and that is we had these guys put together a paper portfolio of 10 companies, and um, they just happened to hit the market at the, you know, very near the bottom as it's starting to come up in June of 2009. And they picked 10 companies, and those were, you know, good companies at the time, well done, uh, through the research and through the toolbox, and they then you you just hold those companies for 10 years and see what happens. And so that's what happened. And the companies did compounded at 32% a year and made 12 to one, like 1200%, 1250% return. Compounded at 32% per year for 10 years and will have continued to compound as the market's gone up the last couple of years. So the good news is, even if you have to wait longer than normal, the impact of what happens when you buy um, stocks when the markets crash is so huge and so gigantic. It overcomes the years you didn't do anything, which is great. That That's the good news. And so the, it's better to stay safe and follow the same investing procedures, even if they take longer, maybe work a little harder, maybe read a little more, maybe try to dig into some companies that might've been a little too hard a couple years ago and you start to learn how to look at them. But you don't change your investing strategy one bit and you be sure that you're ready with a big wash tub as you can get when this market goes down. And that means you just have to be patient. That's yeah. all there is to it. And You have to be patient. And I think the whole, and by the way, I didn't mean to say that this question is boring. I think this is a very interesting question. Yeah, great but question. the But the reason the, the question is interesting is because everybody wants to think like, oh, do I need to like get out of everything right now? Because the whole market's about to crash and then I can buy back the companies I love at a much cheaper price. That would be fantastic, right? And I just think we've seen this thing just go up and up and up and up some more. And I, I, I have, let's just say I have not learned that it's a good idea to get out at any certain point. <laughs> Right. What do you think and about that, Dad? I think you got. I, mean, I, I, think I think what I've learned from get... some mistakes is I sold too early. That's yeah. what I've learned. But I like and that it, it as sucks. a. I like that as a screw up a lot better than I didn't. I didn't make any money on this thing at all because I didn't oh, buy well, it. Yes, or I didn't have any cash available. Yeah. I mean, selling too early. That's Warren Buffett's favorite error back in the 1950s and early but it's 60s. It's an error that can change your whole life if you make it, you know? Well, wait like a second. Somebody... Selling too early typically means you sold with a 100% return. Yeah. Okay, well, there's an old adage, you know, nobody ever went broke taking a profit. 
and that might apply to this in, in the sense that um, that allows you to be ready for the next opportunity. And if you're trying to become financially independent, being ready for the next opportunity typically means you have to sell what you've got. And so you are almost inevitably in a market like this going to sell too early. So my, my view of this is I'm going to sell a company that may not be all that anti-fragile. In fact, we just went through our portfolio looking for making sure that everything in there is anti-fragile. It's going to do better. If we crash, go into a big recession, these companies are going to do great, okay? Not only that, but they're all still well below their intrinsic value. Boom, boom. Those are the two things I'm looking for. Anything that I have that's at or over intrinsic value, I have already doubled my money on it. By definition, I'm buying it at 50% below intrinsic value or better. So I've already doubled my money. I'm looking at these things and going, how anti-fragile are you and how far can I think that you can run? So I don't have a crystal ball. I'm going to get cash out of these companies. I just sold some companies and took the, took the profit, big, big gains, and I've now got that wash bucket bigger than I had it before. So essentially, the I would look at Warren Buffett's letters back in the early 60s when he was describing this process of unloading as it nears or gets above intrinsic value and be prepared to get into something else. And the only problem is right now, you can only do part of that. You can only sell. You can't buy <laughs> because there's nothing to buy. So that, that's the trick. And then it, the, the decision is, am I willing to sit in cash and watch this company I just sold go up another 100%? That's, that's the hard part. Yeah. And so I guess one way you can do this is to just keep shoving stop losses in there um, and follow the company up with stop losses that are rigid. You know, maybe a 10% drop will kick you out of it. And and look at it like that. If, if you really want to ride this thing um, above, way above its intrinsic value, which is where these are going. They're going way, way over their intrinsic value. Yeah. So we're we're out of those. And you guys, if you want to stay with it, then stay with it intelligently with stop losses and uh, the recognition that if it starts to really drop, if there's a COVID hit or whatever, it can move right through your stop loss and you're going to have to jump in there manually and sell it. You know? And But I, that's, that's how you can do it. It's an interesting debate. All right. All right. Man, look at what you did, Karen. You got us looking at each other like, hmm, how should we do this? So nothing easy about it when the government starts to interfere uh, with the markets. It really uh, alters the perception of the market. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and Bill Gates all got together and discussed this very thing. And Buffett's answer was that unless we are permanently in a 1% 10-year T-bill, this will change. It always does. Hmm. So, Where's that? Where, where's that from? From a video I watched on YouTube. Go <laughs> Google it. I think it was right after. <laughs> I think it was right after the two thousand. <laughs> I think it was right after the two thousand twenty meeting. Actually, I think they went on CNBC in mm. a room in in Omaha. You know, we, mm. everything was. Yeah, being yeah, I remember out. that. Yeah, yeah. So check that out. It's be YouTube twenty twenty Gates Munger Buffett. All right. We have gone way too long. We, we should have. have done this over two episodes because the questions were just so interesting. But yeah. thank you guys. And 
those of you who won, look out for emails from us and our teams and everybody who entered. Thank you so much. We're going to play more of these questions going forward. Uh, so you are not forgotten. And uh, go read that Lee Lu speech if you haven't done it yet. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And I'm really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that you're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really hope you enjoyed it.